Let me pray and we'll get into the Word here together. Father, life is all about knowing Your Son, Jesus. And when we talk about glorifying You, really, Lord, our eyes are meant to be on Your Son. He's the One in whom You delight. Father, He's the Savior of the world. He's our Savior. Pray our time in the Word this morning would help us to see Him more clearly, to love Him, Lord, to be drawn more fully into His presence, and to glorify Him. Amen. Last week, we looked at the life of Joseph. We're winding down. Today's the last day, matter of fact, in a 12-part series called On the Road, in which metaphorically we said we were joining with Jesus and His disciples as He looked back, and He pointed out the ways in which God had always painted Him into the texts and the persons of the Old Testament. So this is the 12th lesson just in the book of Genesis in which we've looked back and we've seen people and ways and events in which God showed us Jesus before He arrived on the scene. We're going to wind that up this morning. Last week in looking at Joseph, I think our list had 16 ways in which very clearly the life of Joseph was linked to Jesus. And point by point, you could see this great comparison between one and the other. And really, as exemplary, as stellar as Joseph's life was... So much so that we might have thought that the line of the Messiah would run from Jacob through Joseph. And you know, it's funny that it doesn't. Here on one hand, Joseph is this great point-by-point picture of Jesus Himself. But then in Genesis 49, we learn that the Messiah is not going to come from Joseph. He's going to come from Judah. Now, if you read their stories in Genesis and you compare Joseph and Judah, you might say, Lord, what were you thinking here? Because Judah, he doesn't come out like a rose in his story in Genesis, but Joseph does. And I'm encouraged by that, and I hope you are too. You know, if if God's only picking the best among us, what chance do most of us have? But if God's willing to use the fractured and the deficient, like Judah, to bring about a Messiah, there's probably a chance that he's willing to work with you and me too. So I'm encouraged by that. Joseph, point by point, comparison with Jesus is great, and yet, we learn this morning, Genesis 49, the Messiah is going to come from Judah. When the patriarch Jacob is winding his life down there in the last couple chapters of Genesis, he knows he's dying, and so he calls his sons... And he's going to speak something over each of his sons, and it's really prophetic. In Genesis 49.1, it says, Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. So he calls each son, and he really prophetically speaks over them. And the words that he says, they're not limited to the son or to the son's lifetime. On one level, he speaks past that son's life to the tribes that will come from each one. And specifically this morning, we'll see that he speaks very particularly through Judah to the Messiah. So the blessings are spoken. And blessings is kind of a funny word too. You read some of the things he says about his sons and you're like, it doesn't sound like much of a blessing to me. But at the end of this, in verse 28, he says, This is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, every one, 
with the blessing appropriate to him. What Jacob said was appropriate to each son, what would be true of their tribe, and in Judah's case, true about a very particular descendant. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to read Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12. This is Jacob speaking the words that are appropriate to his son Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp, a young lion. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull or dark from wine and his teeth white from milk. So those are the key phrases Jacob has for Judah. And really, as you know, this is ultimately speaking about the Lord Jesus himself. This goes past anything that could be said of Judah as a person and anything that could be particular to the tribe alone. But there's six things, and we're going to look at them in a couple different ways. First, just a very brief summary. Jacob says about Judah or his tribe, or ideally and ultimately about his key heir, Jesus, he'll be praised by the rest of the nation in verse 8. By the way, Judah's name comes from the Hebrew word that means praise. So praise will be praised. Judah will be praised by his brothers. He and his tribe and his heir will be praised by the rest of the nation. That's going to be characteristic. He will be the victor and ruler over Israel's enemies as well as the ruler of the nation itself. He'll be the conqueror who puts down their enemies and then whom the nation will bow to. He will be like a young lion in all his strength after feasting on prey in verse 9. So, The imagery there is of a young male lion full of vitality and power that you couldn't mess with this guy. The the fourth point is he will be the king of Israel mentioned in the scepter and the staff. And by the way, I'm reading from the New American Standard this morning. So it says, related to that, verse 10, the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes... Shiloh's translated there as a proper name, and that's probably not the best translation. Better translation probably is, until he comes, whose right it is. In other words, the tribe of Judah would hold the position of king ultimately until the one came who would be the ultimate one to whom it was due. So Shiloh was a place that the Ark of the Covenant rested for a while, and there's some thought that it has reference to that. That just doesn't go far enough, though. So Judah's going to hold the kingship until the final king comes. The fifth point, he's going to reign in great prosperity. That's characterized in verse 11 by the abundance of wine. And then last, he personally will be characterized by health and beauty. This has reference in his dark eyes and his white teeth there in verse 12. Now you know if you read through the histories of the Old Testament, there's no king in Israel's history that fulfills all these characterizations by Jacob none of them do and in fact you know when Jacob's saying these things a king doesn't exist in Israel and won't for hundreds of years 
So if we read Israel's history, we get the picture. We know a king's coming, but we don't see him here. You know, when you get to the first glorious king, not Saul, he's the first king of Israel, but we get to Saul's successor, David, he's the first glorious king, God makes a promise to King David. And David, you remember, he's the gold standard for Israel's kings, isn't he? The text says that David has a heart after God and God's things uniquely. And he blows it and he sins. It doesn't mean he's sinless. He, he sins big time. But he's characterized in that his heart is after God and God's things. And out of that heart, David tells God, God, you live in a tent here and I live in a house and that's not right. I want to build you, Yahweh, a house that the ark will rest in. And that sounds like a good idea at first. But the prophet comes back and tells David, you want to build God a house, but God has said instead that He's going to build you a house. So, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is a really important promise and covenant God makes with David. And He says this, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, David, when you die, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David says, God, I want to build you a house. God says, no thanks, I'm going to build you a house instead. Now David's son Solomon, he comes on the scene and he is one glorious king. In fact, he is the epitome of glory. If you look back on the kings of Israel as far as wealth and health and kingdom rule, Solomon was as good as it got. But he's not the king Jacob's talking about. We know that. If you read his story, you know he pretty much falls apart at the end of his life. With all the blessings, he's, he does not end well. <clears throat> Nor did he start a kingdom that endured forever. So, Solomon points to the lion from Judah to Jesus ultimately, but clearly he's not it. Now I want to go back through this list of six descriptions and I want to tie them directly to Jesus Himself. So on the first one, praise. Jesus is the one to whom all praise ultimately is directed. From verse 8, your brothers shall praise you. Now it's interesting, of course, now the nation of Israel does not uniformly praise Jesus, do they? I mean, most... Most of Jesus' relatives by blood, Jews, do not recognize Jesus today. But one day they will and they'll praise Him. Think of Thomas, by the way, as a forerunner of this. This is interesting to me. Thomas, you know, after Jesus' crucifixion, he's uh, burned, right? With the rest of the apostles, he believed Jesus was it, but Jesus died. And his, his brothers, his, his friends, the apostles say, we've seen the Lord, He's risen. But Thomas says, I'm just not going there unless I see His wounds. Unless I stick my hand in His side, I refuse to believe. And so Jesus shows up. And what is, what is Thomas's moment of recognition? He sees the wounded Jesus resurrected before him, doesn't he? He sees the wounds, and then what does he do? He says, my Lord and my God. And Thomas, if you will, he comes early to the party that will eventually be the Jewish nation doing exactly the same thing. If you remember a week or two back, we talked about a text out of Zechariah 12. And it says that he will return 
and they will see him whom they pierced. And when they see him, they recognize him and they repent and they mourn and they weep. The one we've rejected for millennia was our Savior. Well, you see that exactly in the life of Thomas. He says, I won't believe unless I see the wounds. Jesus says, that's fine. Here they are. And Thomas worships. And when you get to Zechariah 12, which is the second coming of Jesus to the earth, that's exactly what you see. The Jews at that point will see the wounded Messiah. and They'll know Jesus of Nazareth, the one our nation has rejected, He was it. And they will at that time, they will worship Jesus. So Jacob said, you will be worshipped by your brothers. That's not going on now with Jesus, but it certainly will be. Israel and the nations ultimately also represented by the 24 elders in Revelation 5 will worship the lion from the tribe of Judah. That's a great passage. Revelation 4 and 5 just supremely encouraging descriptions of what heaven will be like a little bit with, with Jesus in the center and the the saints of the ages focused on and worshiping Him. So Jesus will ultimately receive all praise. The second thing, victor and ruler of Israel and the nations, He says there, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, your brother's son shall bow down to you. You know, Jews, the term Jew, comes from Judah. The Jewish nation is recognized by that one tribe's name, by Judah. Do you know that the city of Jerusalem has a coat of arms? And do you know what's in the middle of their coat of arms? The lion from the tribe of Judah. The Jewish nation is recognized as typified by Judah. The city of Jerusalem today that rejects Jesus, the coat of arms is the lion from the tribe of Judah. One day Jesus is going to return to the earth. And the second coming is exciting things. And when Jesus comes back, we mentioned Zechariah 12, that's part of the second coming, and that's when Israel, his kinsmen by birth, by natural birth, recognize him. But also later in Zechariah 14, we know that the Messiah is going to return with the holy ones of God with him from heaven. He's on a white horse, Revelation 19 says. The holy ones are coming down. This is the stuff of movies, isn't it? This is the stuff that blows movies away. How would, we, how would we write that? How would we script that? What would that look like? For King Jesus riding down on His horse with the armies of heaven with Him in tow, coming right back down to the Mount of Olives, Jerusalem's overrun by the Gentiles, the armies of the world are in Israel, and it says Jesus comes back to the Mount of Olives where the angel said in Acts 1 He would, and with the breath of His mouth He slays His opposition, You know, this is heady, heady stuff. But Jacob said, Judah's heir, his hand would be on the neck of the enemy. He would crush the opposition. He would defeat Israel's enemies. And then he would be worshipped by the saved nation. And that's exactly what you've got in Zechariah 12, 14 and Revelation 19. Uh, The Lion of Judah. You know, when we talk about this, I don't know if you guys have this problem. If I'm talking to someone on the phone and I make an order and they say, what church is that? I say, Lion and Lamb Church. And they're like, will you spell that for me? (laughs) Is he fibbing? Is he lying? Is he telling a fib? Lion and Lamb. Are you with the zoo? Who are you with? You know, it's... I'm serious. I do this all the time. I enunciate clearly. Lion and Lamb Church. 
Just last week again, happens all the time. Uh, but it, can you figure where lion, lion and lamb, you know, where does the lion part come from? Well, it would be right here at Revelation 5.5. 5. You know, when the saints are in heaven and they want a scroll to be open so they know what God's doing, and they, we look around and we say, well, you know what, there's no one that has the, the authority. There's no one worthy enough to open that scroll. And, and John, the apostle, he's weeping because he knows this is important. And, and then they say, well, well, wait, we found someone. The lion from the tribe of Judah has overcome. That's the lion in the lion and lamb church. The lamb, of course, is Jesus in the incarnation in John 1. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We've got to have the lamb before we can get the lion. If all we've got is the lion, we're in trouble. So the incarnation, Jesus is the lamb, takes away the sins of the world, but it's the lion that's coming. It's not the lamb. It's the lion that's coming back. So Revelation 5, 5, Judah's a lion's whelp. You know, the picture here, a young strapping, is there a more virile picture in nature of, of sort of strength and vitality than a young male lion? And, and Jacob's picture is, here is that young lion has gone down and he's torn down prey. And he's feasted and he's sated and he goes back up into the mountain and he's laying there, he's powerful and he's full. And it says, who would think to go up and bother this guy? You wouldn't do that. Well, that's King Jesus ultimately. The ultimate picture of power and strength. The fourth point, he's the ultimate and final king of Israel. Going back to the use of Shiloh in that verse, really we want to say, until he comes, who's right? It is. Again, we can read through the history of the nation of Israel, and we've got lots of kings. And you know there's some great ones. You think of Josiah and Hezekiah and Solomon at his height, at his best. But none of them can fulfill the role Jacob has carved out for his descendant through Judah. We know this person is yet to come. He's yet to arrive on the scene, at least as the Lion of Judah. He's still to come, 2 Samuel 7. It's also under King Jesus' reign that we read of the times of greatest blessing on the earth. Verse 11, it's characterized, Messiah's reign is characterized as a time in which the choicest grapevines would be so common that they would be used as hitching posts and grape juice would be used for laundering. Uh, this is something you don't hear much about, you don't read much about, but what will it be, what will it look like when Jesus rules the earth? This church says in its statement of belief that we believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ physically and personally to the earth. And He comes to establish His rule and reign. That's Matthew 24. And Matthew 25 is the institution of the kingdom of heaven on earth under Messiah's rule from Jerusalem. We say we believe this. What does that look like? You know, Isaiah 11.9 and Habakkuk 2.14 say the same thing. The earth will be covered with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You know, now there's spiritual darkness all over this world. But when Jesus is ruling from Jerusalem, when the Lion of Judah is on His throne, everyone on this earth, there will be no communication barrier, everyone on this earth will know about God and God's things. The knowledge of Christ will cover the earth so fully it's like the waters of the ocean covering the sea floor. Or if you think, some of my favorite passages by the way, 
you know, some of us are going through the Bible in a year in a survey class. And we'll get to the prophets, those really long books that most of us don't read. But you get to Isaiah, and you read from Isaiah 40, the second half of the book on through. Man, is it encouraging. So especially if you get up to about Isaiah 60, it describes what the earth will be like under King Jesus' rule. It'll be safe. And kids can play with vipers and cobras and they won't be hurt. And the powerful real lions on the earth, they won't eat other animals, they'll eat straw. And everyone will have his fig tree and his vine. Nothing will hurt or harm, the text says, in all my holy mountain. See, those days are yet to come on the earth. They cannot come until King Jesus comes back. You know the Scripture also says that Jerusalem will be like a millstone around the neck of the nations. You know, we talk about Middle East diplomacy. Guys, there will never be peace in the Middle East. I just, I'm not a naysayer. I'm just saying. It won't happen. It's not going to happen until Jesus returns. And when He does return, He's going to deliver Israel. He's going to conquer the armies of the nation raised up in rebellion against Him. That's the picture. And He's going to start things over. And you know, a theme you see in the Scriptures In Genesis, God creates the Garden of Eden. And you remember, it's a little sanctuary in the bigger world. And in that garden, it's absolutely perfect. And that's where God dwells with Adam and Eve and He walks with them. But do you know when Jesus rules on the earth, do you know how big big that garden gets? It's the whole world. The Garden of Eden becomes the whole world. King Jesus is there ruling. It'll be great. And you'll be here. If you're a Christian, you're coming back with Jesus to the earth to rule and reign for a thousand years. Revelation says so that's coming this is exciting exciting stuff also by the way genesis 12 1 through 3 you remember we talked about jesus paul interpreted in galatians that jesus was ultimately the one god was talking about when he said to abraham in genesis 12 through your seed all nations of the earth will be blessed Paul says absolutely clearly that's a singular use of that word seed. It's not plural. That the seed of Abraham that would bless the earth is Jesus. And Jacob's referring to him in Genesis 49. And last, six, Jesus will be seen in His glory. Here the description is eyes dark as wine, teeth white as milk. You know, if you go to Revelation 1, you have a description of Jesus. And this is after His resurrection. So you know, someone that saw Jesus on the earth, we know from Isaiah 52 and 53, that if you or I were there in the crowds and we saw Jesus, we would not see a spectacular fellow. We would see a guy that looks common at best. Isaiah says there's nothing about His appearance that drew people to Him. No magnificence, no glory. He wasn't studly. He wasn't movie star handsome. You know, some of the... There's a new one coming out. It might be a great movie about Jesus. But he looks like a rock star, right? With long hair and a beard. He did not look like that. But when he comes back, that's a different story. So, you know, you go to Revelation 1 and John sees him. You know, John can't stand in his presence. The glory of Jesus' person is so overwhelming. John, who knew him on the earth, John that Jesus loved dearly, you know, closest guy on the earth to Jesus, John... When John sees Jesus in His glory, he falls down like he's dead 
in His presence. He has eyes like fire, head and face like wool, totally white. He's girt about with gold. His feet shine like bronze in a furnace. Out of His mouth comes the sword, the Word of God. He's going to be awesome entirely. And if you and I didn't have new bodies, we wouldn't be able to stand in His presence. But thank God we'll have resurrection bodies at that point too. But that's the one Jacob said is coming through the patriarch Judah. The words go past Judah. They go past his tribe. They go past David. They go all the way down to Jesus. So, he is the ultimate object of praise for his Jewish brothers and ultimately for the redeemed world. He is the divine future victor over all of Israel's enemies. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the ruler of all and the one who will be worshipped by heaven and earth. His reign ushers in life eternal and restores and enlarges God's Garden of Eden. His appearance is so glorious that mortal eyes can't stand to look on Him now without falling down. Let me give you a little broader summary. Jesus came in the Incarnation as the Lamb of God. John 1. And He's now though, He's now the Lion of Judah. Jesus came in our humanity as the sin-bearer. And that's a good thing. He is now King and will be conqueror. He was the Son of Mary. But we know Him now as the Son of God. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a humble donkey. But when He comes back, He's on a great white charger, a war horse. He was mocked and marred. In His rejection, He becomes the object of all worship and praise. He was given a reed, if you remember, to mock Him and a crown of thorns. Revelation says He wears many diadems, crowns on His head. And God the Father gives Him a rod of iron to crush the nations in their opposition. He's the one that was rejected. He's now heaven's crown prince. This goes uh, two ways. Two things if I can remember both here. Do you know that Every one of us right here, everyone right here, everyone that's breathed on this earth, you're going to look, you're going to gaze eye to eye into the eyes of the one whose eyes burn like flames of fire. You're going to look into the eyes of the lion from the tribe of Judah. And if you belong to him, he's going to recognize you as an heir of his kingdom, as one of his beloved as the object of His mercy and grace and affection. That'll be a great day. And He'll reward us for the ways we've participated in how He's building His kingdom now. It'll be glorious. Now, if we don't bow to Jesus now so that He recognizes us as His own then, then we face this One with eyes of fire and all power and all authority as our judge. And that's not something we want. Jesus will be a dreadful, dreadful judge. He will judge absolutely perfectly and righteously. And if we bear our own sins, that is not a good thing on us. That will glorify God because it will be righteous judgment. But how do we want to face the lion from the tribe of Judah? As our Savior? As the object of our praise? Or as the one who commits final judgment against us for a life lived independently of Him? We, we have that choice. We don't need to face Him as our judge. I love it 
You know, we're talking about Jesus in the Old Testament. This is Genesis. This is just 12 lessons out of Genesis alone. You know, we could just keep doing this through every book of the Old Testament, couldn't we? But isn't it great? And isn't it fitting that the last picture of Jesus in Genesis is the conqueror? It's the lion from the tribe of Judah. That is the next way he's going to be identified to this earth. It says conquering king. And as we close here, let me wind down just the On the Road series. Let me give you a quick reminder of each of the 12 points. Jesus is the Creator of the heavens and the earth. He's the one that spoke the universe into existence. He is the second Adam. He's the head of a new race of men and women who spiritually share His DNA and like Him, share His life. He is the seed of the woman who came and crushed the serpent in His death and resurrection and will one day cast Satan into the lake of fire and final judgment. Jesus is the ultimate ark. We think of Noah's ark, but Noah's ark was meant to tell us that Jesus is the only means by which a man or a woman, a boy or a girl may pass through the floodwaters of God's righteous judgment and live. He is the only means. He is the seed of Abraham, the one in whom the world would be truly and fully blessed. He is our new high priest. Think of Melchizedek back there in Genesis 13 who replaced Aaron's priesthood, who offered a better sacrifice, gave us better promises through a better covenant, a priesthood that lasts forever. Jesus is that new priest. Jesus is the guest of Abraham. If you remember, He brought words of life in the promise of the Son of Promise, Isaac. And at the same time, He turned around and brought judgment and death on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus is the Son of Promise like Isaac. And like Isaac, He's the one whom the Father offers up on the mountaintop and the Father receives back again through resurrection. He is Jacob's ladder. Jesus is the only connection between heaven and earth. If you and I want to have any divine communication between heaven and earth, it goes over, it goes through, it goes on Jesus. He is the one who wrestled Jacob from a life of self-reliance into a life of faith. And that's what He does in your life and mine still for sure today. When we ask ourselves, God, why are You allowing that hard thing into my life? This is why. Because He's wrestling us. He's, he's relieving us of our self-dependence and helping us to walk by faith in Him instead. He is the one like Joseph who was sold by his brothers with wicked and evil intentions. And yet in the midst of that evil wickedness, was God's very means of deliverance. That's exactly what we read about Jesus in Acts 2 and 3. And last, He's the Lion from the tribe of Judah, the one who will rule and reign over the new heavens and the new earth forever. You know, you cannot help but conclude this at the end of the day. God has one great object and subject in the pages of the Bible. And it's His Son. It's Jesus. If we read through the Bible and we don't see Jesus, we've missed everything. God the Father delights in Jesus the Son. And as we read our Bibles, and that's something we believe in, we should be delighted in Jesus as well. May God give us sight to see Him on every page of Scripture. Guys, I've done this once before. We're good Protestants. We don't kneel much, but I want to kneel. I invite you to kneel with me. I just want to 
rededicate and offer myself and ourselves as a church to God again and to Jesus as His Savior and King. Lord Jesus, I bow, we bow before You. We acknowledge our sinfulness, Lord, and the righteous wrath and punishment. Jesus, You took on our behalf on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord Jesus, thank You for granting us life and forgiveness. God, would You give us eyes to see Your Son more clearly, to love Him. Lord, would You help the glory of Your Son Jesus to be our goal. Father, for anyone who doesn't know You this morning, would You help them bow and accept Jesus the Savior as the Lamb so that they can receive Jesus, the Lion of Judah, as Savior and King. And Lord, with John the Apostle, we say at the end of Your book, in the book of Revelation, Amen. Come Lord Jesus.